The Broken Clock Podcast returns and we're continuing our series, concluding our series on the four stoic virtues. And we've saved the, the best and possibly the least followed for last. We're talking about wisdom. And last week, I posed the question that we're going to get to this week because I wrote it down and didn't lose the note. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, miracle of miracles. In a world where popular opinion is connected to the basics of life, how can we seek wisdom? And Mouse, we're going to start by talking about stoic wisdom, but I'm going to warn people as we, we get into this topic, it's going to become clear very, very quickly that the world is in short supply of this particular commodity. We, uh, we seem to uh, uh, live in the age of Athenian or, or, or uh, desire for Athenian direct democracy where the mob rules everything and mobs do not create great surfeits of wisdom. No, they don't. Yeah. So it, it, Athens, uh, the, you know, the ancient Greek world, but especially Athens was an interesting study in contradictions that way. They had some absolutely wonderful scholars and a system of government that essentially collapsed because it was a great idea that was unworkable. Um, but also, you know, you get into these great wise philosophers like Aristotle, who had utterly crummy opinions about women. And this is where we get into my first challenge to this whole thing before we, we lay down the fundamentals. I'm going to pull a bit of a Hillel here. Um, how can we trust the Greeks on wisdom, seeing as they had some real blind spots? <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the things that separates, say, philosophy from uh, certain types of, for example, absolutist religion is that the proponent of a system and the proponents of an idea does not need to be infallible. Um, in fact, the whole point of philosophy, or at least the whole point of philosophy should be, um, and this is something that the Stoics made a very big point of, is that you should have a philosophy that will help you live on earth. That means that you're not going to be perfect. Absolute perfection, complete inf infallibility is impossible. You are going to to be very to to quote uh, Epictetus. You're going to fuck things up every now and again. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure he didn't quite say it that way. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> not an exact quote. Then again, gr ancient Greek to English translation is more of an art than a skill. So I'll accept I'll accept the uh, the paraphrase. Well, you know, there have been there have been a couple of new translations from uh, ancient Greek where scholars realized that a good amount of early um, early writings had been bowtlerized quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, and there was there's quite a bit of colorful language. So you never know. Uh, yeah. I mean, the other problem we have with the modern interpretation of, of all Greek philosophy is that it was filtered through the church right. and much, much like the much like the Torah, the Old Testament, certain things were, were tweaked, shall we say, to avoid offending sentiments of uh, the, the, their hosts, Paul and, and company's hosts, shall we say. And then that sort of continued throughout the, the medieval ages when, when some of these doctrine 
were being laid down and justifications were being made for the doctrine. The Hello, ancient, Bishop Irenaeus. Yeah, the, the ancient Greeks were invoked and the, the, those, you know, Christian scholars stripped out that fact that these philosophers were not infallible and thought was supposed to evolve. And it, 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 that does cause a problem when we start accessing this stuff and start trying to talk about this stuff in any sort of public space, because the, the understanding that the layman's understanding of even down to terminologies has been so I'll say polluted by uh, a particular politicization of of these these source texts i i was really uh had my eyes opened when i started reading the greeks directly and not through you know those little uh those little snippets of mm -hmm. you know a couple lines fortune cookie type things and i know i retweet them all the time from daily stoic i still i still lean on those sometimes just to get people thinking little seeds of thought but when you read when you read it in in you know widescreen for lack of a better term, you really get a much different um, sense. Some things like, you know, Marcus Aurelius's meditations drill down to bite size a bit better than some other stuff, but it's it's really, really not the same thing. Well, and the good thing about the renewed interest in Marcus Aurelius and the Stoics is that nowadays, because up until recently, many of the translations you had um, we're in very uh, archaic language, yes. uh, very, very archaic English. Um, nowadays, and if you don't read Shakespeare, um, that, or I guess role play, yeah. <laughs> um, that kind of language can be a little bit of a, 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 a turnoff for you. Um, but nowadays you have a more, you have more, um, shall we say more, modern vernacular versions right of of, um, of marcus aurelius's writings and even though he was not technically a stoic um there is a hilarious um translation a C cicero the roman orator had a, a, he wrote an essay on humor and it, it's pretty funny but again most of the translations are very much under if thou shalt yeah. um so someone i forget who the translator is um i'll probably look them up later uh i think it's oh give me one second i have to i cannot um well well i found an audio the audiobook narrated by roger clark but <sighs> it's it's a um, it's a Princeton University Press book uh, called How to Tell a Joke, which is a modern translation of Cicero's uh, on humor. But it kind of adapts um, Stoic ter uh, uh, Roman terms to modern terms. So he talks about the sick burn, the quick <laughs> comeback, things like that. And it's it's actually pretty funny. I, I read the original, uh, no, not the original. I don't read Latin, but uh, I read one of the early, the early original translations, and I read this one. And the the translation doesn't lose anything. In fact, it kind of gains more because the translator is making a point of translating the intent of the writer as he would have written today without being faithless to the text. So, like, no filter. 
It's like he's so tweeting. Like, yeah. Yeah, it kind of like that. Cicero was Cicero was of course very famous for his uh, powers of oratory. Right. And he appreciated the use of humor. But you know, this kind of stuff, these translations, some people say are they're dumbing they're uh, dumbing the material. Yeah, I know that argument. It's not necessarily that it all depends on how well it is done. Yes. Um, and you know, it's not Shakespeare. Um, you know, Shakespeare wrote in a very particular way, used language in a very specific way. So changing Shakespeare kind of takes things away from him. But uh, you know, nobody speaks Latin except a very, very tiny percentile of people. Well, okay. In fairness, though, Shakespeare is abridged all the time for modern yeah. audiences. They take out the wanks to whatever nobleman or local leader financed the play or could yeah, cause exactly. them a lot of trouble, <laughs> right? I mean, Shakespeare was also at the time considered kind of slumming it mm -hmm. in, in literature, that whole theory. People laugh at me whenever I bring up the Baconite theory of Shakespeare that some people thought that Sir Francis Bacon, Bacon. actually wrote Shakespeare's plays because Shakespeare was far too much of an uneducated commoner who knew no Latin and little Greek, he couldn't possibly have written words in English. And you know, he, much like Snoop Dogg and Jay-Z, uh, Shakespeare liked to make up words, not yeah. only to fit into the, the, the pentameter, but also just because it sounded better. And people kind of look at me askance when I compare what Shakespeare was doing to modern hip hop, but there's a, and modern dance hall, there's a lot mm -hmm. of that in, oh, yeah. in these, these art forms. And I, I completely agree what you're saying that people who insist that it's um, taking away to put into to language that people understand, we got to get people started somewhere, mm -hmm. right? As, as much as, as I am not afraid of bad take and that's cringe, if, if we can get people onto the good stuff through bad take and that's cringe i'll i'll go for it now i mean the the other <laughs> the other problem is there's a lot of people who will not um will not touch these older works just because they're dead white men you know that uh many schools now are oh no we have to get a more diverse curriculum and to me a lot of a lot of the thinkers that people are gonna read now we talk about Ayn Rand take a shot in this way a lot but I think that thinkers such as you know some of the critical theorists like Ibram Kendi and and um uh what's in Kimberly Crenshaw they too get misconstrued in places because they are using academic language and directly refuting something and then it gets put in a little meme soundbite and people think that's all there is to it. And a lot of the context is lost. Yeah, that's one of the, it's, it's interesting because the majority of Stoics when they wrote, um, they strove to write plainly. Yes. Um, uh, I, 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 the motto was more or less, they, they disdained the um, pen and paper philosophers and they, they, they coined that term as people who spend most of their day hypothesizing and theorizing about philosophy, but finding no, right. very little to no practical application right. in real life. And uh, Chrysippus, for example, was one of, one of the early Stoics. He was very much 
kind of the person who defended the philosophy in public, uh, who tested a lot of the arguments against Stoicism and weighed them, which ones had merit, which ones didn't. And then the ones that had merit, he would use them as a way to improve right. um, what the philosophers were teaching. But the point, and he wrote a lot. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, anything that he wrote that has survived. Um, but um, he was kind of known for saying very eloquent things in very plain language. And that's, to me, that's always the mark of someone who knows what they're talking mm -hmm. about. Yes, because, I agree. Because, and that's, that's one of the things I always dislike about highly academic language. <laughs> because I, I did, I went through there. Uh, fortunately, um, my degree is not one where you have to bullshit a lot, um, uh, I, I guess, except in certain, well, I had a, a, I had a teacher in my methods of research class who I loved, mm -hmm. but she kind of had a bit of a fixation on Fran, uh, Felix and Fanny Mendelssohn. Um, oh. Uh, well, she, she had a very, she had, she'd written um, essays and papers about, um, uh, about the possibility that they had an incestuous relationship. Okay. Uh, and she, she just kind of was very fascinated by that. Mm. Um, and the way she read some of the correspondence, etc., I was like, are you, is this really there? Or are you trying to, Yeah. are you subconsciously moving things? Writing in a, in a very, very, <laughs> in a very, very abstract academic language to try to make, you know, piece A fit into slot B. Oh God, did I just do <laughs> Yes, you did. That was literally and figuratively what she was she was doing. It's that's that's postmodernism in a nutshell, though, right? So it many, kind of is so many people are you know getting their their papers, for lack of a better term, by by doing stuff like that. I I enjoy some queer theory. I, I admit. I I I find it. I like the way it drives some people crazy. <laughs> you, you know, the, the fact that we live in an age, right? And I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I will bring this back around. Um, the fact that due to the movies, people are seeing the Lord of the Rings through a queer lens. And obviously Tolkien had absolutely no, no intent to have it portrayed that way, but he drew heavily from Greek epics where they were mm -hmm. hugging and kissing and singing and crying all over right. each other. And remember, and, remember, Patroclus was just a friend. Right, right. And, <laughs> it's and a really it was, good friend who borrowed his boyfriend's armor and then got killed for it. Right, exactly. And so, um, yeah. It, the lesson to take away from that, never borrow your boyfriend's clothes. Never. <laughs> <laughs> okay i found that far too funny so getting getting i mean as seneca put it stoic wisdom is not as you were saying it's it's not postmodern theory it's works not words you have to be able to apply your wisdom and that that was what got me out of the academy and into youth programming and and journalism and i always hate that term journalism with what I did because it was more documentary and you know infotainment stuff but people fucking right. watched it 
So it's the same thing, right? <laughs> it's the thing we were talking about earlier. But I, I firmly believe, I will argue to the death that if something can't be applied, then something's wrong with it. And I, I came into that, I found out the hard way, part of the reason a lot of my attitudes towards uh, the, I'm going to drop an F-bomb, feminism are so different <laughs> than the orthodoxy is I had to get in there and actually start applying concepts to a television show. And a lot of the ideas that, you know, were not peer reviewed, the Bechdel test was never peer reviewed. It came from a comic strip. Yes. She never intended it to be some litmus test. You know, the, the whole Laura Mulvey's whole um, treaties on the male gaze was a self-described polemic. It's not, you know, it's not peer reviewed. It's not tested. And a, a lot of um, really excellent stuff has been pointed out with all the problems in it. But these things continue to be taught in schools to this day as if they have some merit and you get out in the world and you start, especially with, with performance art and with music and with especially black music to, to put a real, like, let's just, let's just go for the jugular on this one. Right. Um, yeah. There's been this whole reclaiming of twerking of late. And I'm quite, bless Lizzo, bless Lizzo. Um, all hail Lizzo. All hail Lizzo. Because I got really pissed off when, you know, white America started pontificating on twerking uh, because of a Miley Cyrus performance. So one girl got no ass. What, that, that's just my, <laughs> my personal thing that I was, I was I, I was going to say that most of the people who are scandalized by it is because they don't have, uh, you know, they can't make it clap. Yeah, girl, got, <laughs> girl got no ass. That's the sound of one hand clapping right there. <laughs> yeah. You know, but. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my, you mean Miley Cyrus is the ultimate koan? <laughs> yes, yes. I, you know what, I love Miley for doing this. I love that she's sort of, no matter what girl cannot get out of the trailer park and there's something authentic to that you know yes. it's like, similar with cardi b you hear that girl talk she's dumb as a post but <laughs> she's so just what a shiny post you know <laughs> and, but lizzo's not lizzo's not like that and lizzo did a whole like ted talk type thing about twerking no, she's she's very uh Lizzo, she's one of my favorite performers. Yeah. Uh, contemporary performers like Lizzo and Lady Gaga for me are at the top mm -hmm. right now, you know, right next to ABBA, um, you know, all hail ABBA. But, <laughs> but Lizzo is very, she's, she has a very, very sharp intellect. Yes, and she does. And um, a lot of people, of course, gee, sexism. A lot of people uh, overestimate her, uh, underestimate Under her, yeah. sorry. Yeah. They underestimate her because, you know, she wears the revealing outfits, she does, etc. Yeah. But let me tell you, that girl is smart and she is yeah. a freaking amazing flutist. I wish yeah. she would do a duet with Ian Anderson before yeah. he died. Uh, before so, he dies. And, and Lizzo's part of this wave along with, I mean, okay, we got to credit Beyonce for yeah. starting kind of a, a consciousness movement in hip-hop R&B and it's spreading into... Uh, dance hall and soul and uh, you know Lizzo, Megan the Stallion, uh, 
Nicki Minaj has kind of gone broke lately instead of woke, but um, <laughs> there there is this talking about the dance moves. There's this wonderful Canadian artist called Omega Mighty. I just discovered, and she's done this song. I I, I got it as a for a New Music Nation show. It's called Wine Master, um, and whining is a similar but not the same dance to twerking and that twerking is straight out of west africa it's it's originated in mupoko mupoka sorry um but whining has more you know how the caribbean is just this like mixing pot of cultures and yeah so whining it looks like it's the hips but it's coming from the waist and it's it's very it's very much like a latin a, a cuban knee that way the movement originates in the waist now then of course you get other dances that involve the neck and can cause certain injury but you know the dance hall queens go for it um but artists are finally starting to talk both in their lyrics and in interviews about reclaiming feminine spaces in these in these cultures in these art forms from uh from white offense standards and yeah. omega you mighty know. deliberately yeah. makes a, a video where it's all women and the yeah. thing about the wine is it's it's women performing the dance men can come and try to join but if she pushes <laughs> you away you know you're supposed to listen but not a single man appears in the entire video except entire for maybe video. one horse who looks very very confused um, <laughs> and, and it i it's a very very interesting and the fact that she called it masta instead of mistress i'm sure was not an accident mm -hmm. you know um and we get more of this in canada because we're a little we're, we're a little less prudish than than the us in this regard and we you know we let people keep their culture so I realize listening to this stuff that's coming out of Canada, it's what I think Rihanna sounds like and what I mm -hmm. think Beyonce sounds like on tracks like Baby Boy and Naughty Boy. But no, they are popping the whole thing so extremely. My brain couldn't take it. it, it it's amazing to me. And these are performers. To me, this is where stoic wisdom has has found its nest in modern culture is in is in feminist hip-hop that they're not just talking right they're not making whiny songs about what they'd like they're just doing it they're going out there and and you know lizzo's lizzo's you see her recent video she's making herself a greek goddess like, that, yep. that's not subtle and they're actually going <laughs> we're not we're not going to wait for the world to catch up to us we're just gonna do it and we're going to show that this works and people look at me totally askance when i you know dare to compare you know either because somebody's somebody's full woke and they're like oh those are dead white men they're part of the patriarchy everything like that yeah okay but were they wrong about everything and then other people just you know sniff and oh hip-hop couldn't possibly it's just it's it's scandalous it's what is everything's moving you know and, uh we we don't recognize that stoicism much much like the torah was designed to be simple plain speak and and portable right 
And Pretty much. And, you know, I was just thinking there's, a, of course, you know, Lizzo and Beyonce, they're kind of the second coming of what happened briefly back in uh, World War II. Um, you know, pre-World War II era. Remember, there was a very, very influential uh, African-American performer who kind of flaunted and uh, uh, sh she flaunted um, what you might call the um, the modesty moors uh, and became a superstar. Uh, of course, I'm talking about Josephine Baker. Baker, yeah. Or, or even something like- uh, who, was also, who was also a member of the resistance. Yes. <laughs> Or even somebody like the, the the group, the Fifth Dimension, who mm -hmm. most people. This is the dawning of the, which is a song from Hair. But yes, nobody knows the Would song. Would you from like Hare. to fly in my beautiful yeah. balloon? But they did the Age of Aquarius, mm -hmm. and white people didn't know they were black, and black people were like, "What's going on? Why are you seeing <laughs> white people?" And I just saw a documentary about how they performed at the. Uh, 69 Harlem Festival and there's a there's a wonderful wonderful documentary that Questlove put together with previously unaired footage from this documentary that took place in the um, the same summer as Woodstock Woodstock and the media buried it of course and there are performances by Stevie Wonder and um, was it Gladys Knight yeah Gla a really young Gladys Knight uh, oh, God. I love Gladys Knight. Um, oh, what was his name? One of the singers from, I believe, The Temptations, but he'd gone solo. There's some gospel stuff that just blows your mind. And there's a Sly and the Family Stone performance that is just so typical Sly and the Family Stone. And <laughs> I won't belabor this too much, but I mean, these are these are artists just doing it. And we don't think of the Stoics as artists. But in a lot of ways, I mean, come on, I know Diogenes is a cynic, but when dude lives in a barrel to make a point, that's performance art. It was a clay yeah. pot, right? Clay Sorry, pot. A yeah, pot. a gi ginormous clay pot. And, yeah. you know, Seneca was a playwright. Um, in, well, in fact, uh, a lot of people used to er believe that there were two Senecas um, yes. early in, in, in early, early scholarship because they couldn't believe that this incredibly, you know, that this, this, um, this um, letter writer and politician was also the same incredibly talented uh, playwright who wrote all of these comedy, these tragedies and comedies. Yeah. Um, because of course, again, the very, very twisted conception of what a Stoic is, they couldn't imagine a Stoic writing a comedy. Uh, <laughs> Well, that, that's what's interesting is people, a lot of people are fascinated by stoicism and yet they don't understand the concept at all. I actually got a really good job in gaming because I, I don't know if I've talked about this story before. The, 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 one of the best guys I've ever worked through, a guy by the name of Alexander McCreese, uh, former owner of The Escapist, founder of The Escapist. Dude is very right wing, but he made a comment of the stoics and this is before I got the job, but I actually lead him because he said something about, you know, suppressing emotion. And I said, stoicism is not about the suppression of emotion. It's about the processing of emotion. If you are trying to pack that shit down, you are doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of like, tell me more. And that's pretty much <laughs> how I got the job. Which I just got a shout out to Alex McCreese because that that's a good boss that um, that that can can take that. You know, like, oh, 
girl on the internet. Tell me more. Um, <laughs> but th th this is this is the thing is that a lot of people think it's all about tamping it down, tamping it down. The Greeks would never ever tell you because that's going against nature, right? Yeah, I and mean, the whole the what what's the line? The the idea about between stimulus and response, there's a space. Oh, Viktor Frankl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The and and that, that you have that, is, that, yeah. that there's a space between stimulus and response, and that is the space where you can make your choice. Right. And, and then um, the idea of um, what is complete according to nature for a rational being—that's Cicero. Yeah. Like that's where wisdom resides. And the the other thing that's great about wisdom that I, I want to pivot to before we run out of time—not that we're super running out of time—but um, the idea that Stoic wisdom had an other category. There wasn't just good. There wasn't just evil. There was an indifferent category stuff that just did not matter one mm -hmm. way or another. And that, that has gotten lost. I yeah. think mouse. I mean, for example, you know, we're talking about the people who, you know, Epictetus, Epictetus, haha. Um, <laughs> He had a student who was very focused on trying on getting fame and fortune. And, you know, this is, we're talking about the man who said to this guy, you know, if you if you're set on wearing crowns, why not make one out of roses? You will look more elegant than that. Yeah. You know, that very, very. Uh, but, you know, you also have Chrysippus. Funny, Chrysippus twice in one episode. Yeah. But there is a story about how he died. Um, he was watching a, a, a donkey eating figs um, there were people were feeding this donkey figs and he found that incredibly funny and he said no now give it a, a drink of wine to wash down the figs oh. and, he and then he died in a fit of laughter that's a way to go <laughs> I, I mean there, there's a lot of wisdom in comedy there's yeah. a lot of wisdom in comedy i keep going back to those old 70s sitcoms all in the I mean, family sanford and son maude you know the jeffersons yeah there's just a lot of wisdom just look at Aristophanes' Lysistrata for crying out loud. Uh, um, pe people probably have, a lot of people haven't read Lysistrata, but it's essentially a comedy where um, women protest war by withholding sex you from know, their Arist husbands. Aristophanes did some really forward thinking, brilliant stuff. And I admit the <laughs> only reason I started reading him is because he was in Assassin's Creed Odyssey and it made me laugh. <laughs> I like oh, how he, was, he was so perfectly for, portrayed in Assassin's yeah. Creed. Yeah, uh, and I'm like, who is this dude? Like, this is a pretty smart dude. He he has he mastered the art of 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 satire, uh, and just the way he, he of course he satirizes people from his time. But yeah, if you read Lysistrata, you could um, you could transplant that. Um, that story to modern to modern times, and it would still be just as funny. In fact, um, actually, give me well, one second. The clouds is the one I I keep going back to because it was so prescient. Yes. So this is uh, this is what happened. You know, Lysistrata has actually happened in real life. Uh, this what happened. This happened in two thousand and eleven, and I thought this was. Amazing. Uh, so the, the there's a town in Barbacoas, which is uh, a, a port town in Colombia, uh, and women refuse to have sex 
until the government agreed to pave the main road of their town, which was so badly in need of repair that it took seven hours to travel like 50 kilometers. Um, And of course, that happened. And then there was also a a, a kind of a movement of the wives and girlfriends of, uh, of, uh, I I wish I could remember it was, some of the of a guerrilla guerrilla movement that did the same thing to try to force uh, to try to force uh, an armistice a truce. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know Aristophanes knew what he was talking about. No, oh, he he was he was very much very forward thinking when it came to the danger of of the the opinion mob. Mm-hmm. Gee, I wonder why. Um, I wonder why. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it. I think I don't think that some of these misunderstandings are an accident. I think no. that once things get, you know, when it's not the Greek method of teaching where a couple smart, they were all guys, but treat guys as a gender neutral term for this one. A couple of smart people show up, start talking, other people listen. The, the more you get away from that and end up in the academy, the more stuff starts getting pulled into what is good for the academy not the members of Mm -hmm. the academy and so many of these institutions now are just trying to self-sustain and they're they're warping knowledge in doing so i mean people blame social media for the way the world is right now but you know social media can't create ideas Social media just transmits ideas in, in, a, in a one-to-one thing without a lot of, you know, without a lot of checks along mm-hmm. the way, but it's people creating these ideas. And a lot of them it's just- It's Soylent Green. It, it, is, it is Soylent Green, but it's, it's also sort of, we talk a lot about floating abstractions. Mm-hmm. And people, instead of applying information, they base or, or or knowledge or concepts, they basically create rules for everybody else. Not just rules for themselves and rules for everybody else, but just rules for everybody else. Because everybody's just trying to throw as much mud on everybody else, so that people won't notice their own flaws. Right, and that's kind of touches upon something I said earlier in the week, that one of the problems that has brought about this American psychosis, um, it's very uniquely American, is the fact that uh, of the fetishization of power as the ability to control people instead of the ability to master yourself. Yeah, we're certainly seeing that within the Democratic Party with the quote unquote negotiations, aka a Mexican standoff in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, it's it's give us trillions of dollars or nothing, not okay, we'll give you this, let's see what we can work on. I don't think that's a very wise approach. People might be able to convince me otherwise, but you know, it it is so loud in the US right now. I will say though, I looked at the exit polling. Uh, I follow this guy by the name of uh, Gerald Butts on Twitter. He's a former political advisor who's now doing a bunch of stuff on climate change and sustainability. But he posted a lot of data about the recent German election. 
-hmm. And even in Germany that has had decades and decades and decades of not just single party rule because it's a coalition thing, but Angela Merkel has been an institution in that country, right? She grew up- I'm sorry, I just, I have to tell this story real quick. Uh, So my dad actually met Angela Merkel. Um, He was invited by some friends with my mom. Uh, My mom was still alive back then to Bayreuth to endure Wagner's ring cycle. Oh no. Now, my dad is of course a fan of opera. He's not a fan of Wagner, but he thought, you know, this is a once in a lifetime uh, thing because seats for Bayreuth are very, very hard to get. You have to buy them years in advance. Wow. Um, and um, so he went there. He went, uh, they, they made this trip. My mom went, my dad went. And of course my dad told me just what a sadistic machinery Bayreuth <laughs> is. Uh, picture it like this, there are no aisles. There's only left and the left and right aisles, right? Right. Um, the seats are wooden, no, no cushions, nothing. So that the most un- they're the most uncomfortable thing to so ensure that you fall don't asleep. fall asleep. Yep, yep, yep. Um, now the, the the one thing that I will grant Wagner, who was a goddamn asshole, uh, an anti-Semite, the one good idea that he had is that he sunk the orchestra. So the orchestra is yes. under the stage. And all you can see is the conductor. Yeah. The orchestra is under the stage and there's holes in the stage so that the sound comes out under the musicians and it mixes with them instead of the musicians having mm-hmm. to sing against the wall of sound. Yes. And, ha- you know, and there's no delay because there's always like a split second delay anyways uh, when you're between what you hear from the pit. Um, oh yes. People do not realize how real that is. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's yeah. why you have to follow the conductor. And if you have a bad conductor, you're fucked. Oh, but, yep. but turns out that like two seats to his left, it was Angela Merkel. <laughs> Interesting. And, and so, you know, he talked he, he talked to her and, you know, he says she was, you know, very pleasant, very intelligent woman, of course. Uh, and then when they were leaving, uh, oh yeah, also they lock the doors. Oh my God, what if you have to go to the bathroom? Too bad. Too bad, pretty much yeah. too bad. They only opened the doors for intermission. Uh, and I was thinking that place is a fire trap. Yeah. <laughs> you could not get away shit. with that in the US. This is um, the shit rich people do to each other. Yeah. Because it's culture. I know. Uh, you, will, you will enjoy this, whether you like <laughs> it or not. Uh, and so, but then of course, um, they were leaving, you know, they were, they were exiting the theater and it just so happened that Angela Merkel and uh, her husband, she has a husband or yes. a boyfriend, I don't yeah. um, were right ahead of my dad leaving. And of course there's a press, you know, circling all around right. and she's, she's waving and my dad decides to wave right behind her. Ah! <laughs> and my mom's like, stop it, stop it. And my dad says, no, I'm gonna wave, wave, wave. <laughs> he probably would have found that hilarious. Uh, and then you, you could see his picture in the newspapers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that Markle is, you know, every single thing that described her exit from German, German leadership describes her as a stoic. So, yeah. I mean, th- this, this is on topic, um, but she apparently has a very keen sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And- yeah, my, da- my dad says that she was, she, it was very understated sense of humor, but so he, like- said she, he thought she was hilarious. Well, but you got to keep in mind, she's from the former East Germany. Mm-hmm. I mean, she knew what real fascism looks like. And 
this this has been i mean germany has been defined by the rule of this one very very impressive woman for a very long time but germany's had its things they've had issues with migrant influxes and you look at the breakdowns in exit polling and germany has one of those coalition governments that they're the only country in the world that seems to make those things work because of course <laughs> germany uh but <laughs> there are serious divisions in, based on age and based on geographic region mm-hmm. if you look at the way people voted you would swear that the East and West German division with the Berlin Wall was alive and well. Mm -hmm. That around Berlin, around the major city center, there is more extremist political sentiment, more right and left. So it's not about right versus left, it's about extremes. Also younger on that side, you get to the older West German, you know, all the other cities, the, 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 the Berlin and the other, right? All the, the rest of you are more moderate, but they also happen to be older. And that's fascinating to me that we talk about the the divides in U.S. politics. And so the, the Canadian media likes to talk about the divides in our politics. And let me tell you, when you actually break down issue by issue, the divides in this country are nothing compared to compared the US, to the- <laughs> like it, it is baby's division. It is the difference between, you know, life and death stuff and what do you want to have for dinner uh, yeah. with a few notable exceptions. But even in Germany, who's- Can I move to Canada? Seems, <laughs> yeah, come to Canada. No, please. We have enough people trying to come to Canada and it's a bit of a problem. Uh, uh, I was saying for my supper. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. We actually let people in. I know. And so <laughs> the, the wait times are going up because people have recognized, hey, we can go to Canada. Oh, shit. You know, our backlog is doubling by a year doubling. every six months, it seems. Just because just because we can only process so many people. Right. right. So the, you know, even in Germany, which is seen as this hallmark of stability, there are these divides. I don't see a problem with divides i actually think divides are good because it means people aren't getting complacent Mm -hmm. the problem is we no longer know how to handle these divides and that's where i mean the the sort of how do you explain stoic wisdom uh, while standing on one leg kind of thing and it it comes down to the idea of listen more than you talk Yes, the Epictetus quote that we were given two ears and one mouth so that we may listen more than we speak. That was Epictetus, not Zeno? Oh, my mistake. Okay. Oh, no, that, that is Zeno. Why okay, are we speaking okay, Epictetus? Hey, hey, I remembered something, Mouse. That's the uh, first time this week I've been able to recall something. I forgot Troy Baker's name the other day <laughs> in a lecture. Oh, I felt so stupid. But well, yeah. I'm, I, it's early enough that right now I'm not entirely conscious. So I'm just kind yeah. of like channeling my subconscious. So God knows what's going to come out of me. There's a reason I think we spent 20 minutes talking about Lizzo. We're just like happy yeah. <laughs> person. Uh, but yeah, but that, that to me is the core of it. And I talk a lot for a living. So I have to make sure my <laughs> asshole, asshole to awesome ratio is in check that way. And so I end up listening a lot too. And it's amazing what you pick up when you listen, when you like really listen, not just wait to talk, listen. And because to me, what I pick up 
is different perspectives that again when you when you allow yourself that option c that indifferent column that neither good nor bad it opens up this whole new world um to oh no no I, we say i said i said i did it unbelievable sight indescribable feeling sorry learning stoicism <laughs> oh you're ad-libbing awesome ad okay <laughs> yes we are not awake uh, <laughs> I think we inverted the part. So you were singing Princess Jasmine there, and I was, I was singing Aladdin. I mean, are you surprised? But that's, uh, that song's in a weird key, too. And the, and the key change is really strange. Like the modulation is like, what are you just doing? It's being Malik bailed out of in the live action. I will, because it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful sounding key change. It, it is. It is a lovely bit of sublime. I really think it was based for that one singer's voice, though. But you've got to be a good musician to pull it through. Well, and yes. <laughs> yes. And so we can appreciate it. And yet that goes in the indifferent column. It is neither good nor bad. It is neither good nor bad. Uh, but, you know, when you when you listen to people, you can go, huh, I never considered it that way before. It doesn't change my position, but it creates space next to my position where I recognize both these viewpoints are valid. And so we have to find a way going forward that allows both these viewpoints to coexist, you know? Right. Because most of the time, the issue is not the viewpoint, but the implementation thereof. Because you can have, you know, for example, um, you can have, um, you know, how can I put this? So I can you use can... A, a really superficial example. Go ahead. Um, the whole Tim Drake is bisexual thing. <laughs> um, people I know lost their shit over this. And I was immediately like, oh, come on. The dude does, does every closeted gay thing out there. Yes, I know they were attempting to write him as the nerdy Robin and the gay or nerd. The Venn diagram has a huge amount of overlap. But it's pretty funny that they just went well yep okay it's in the okay text. but you've got i mean i was a gay teenager reading that reading that's around the time when tim drake became robin and i swear to you for like years i went is he closeted gay like because there's just <laughs> i remember because there's there's a i actually did a um play one of my first paid acting jobs was playing a teen mom and I, I was the furthest thing to a teen mom at the time. I was like, why did they cast me? Why am I here? Uh, <laughs> but they, I, I was sort of acutely aware that guys don't stick around. And the fact that Tim Drake sticks around and Stephanie Brown's pregnant, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of uh, uh, HIV AIDS stuff at the time too. I'm like, that isn't the straightest move. Baller no. move, Tim Drake's nice guy. But that ain't the straightest move. Like guys yeah. don't tend to stick around pregnant teenage girls to begin with. Never mind when it's not your kid, because that right. is taking on a lot of mess. And that was when I started going. I mean, first of all, the whole Robin thing is <laughs> like, come on. Well, I the fact that he wanted to be because every other Robin has wanted to be something else like, you know, uh, Dick Grayson eventually becomes Nightwing. Uh, yeah. And then you had, you know, um, 
Damian Wayne wants to be Batman. Tim Drake is the only Robin that has wanted to be and stay Robin. I think it's interesting you totally skipped Jason Todd and bless you for that. Let's do that. He had like a week. <laughs> <laughs> he was voted dead. And now he there's all these conspiracies dead. about whether or not that was a real vote. Anyway, my point about <laughs> Tim Drake is bisexual. First of all, it was, he is not guaranteed bisexual. Right. He is, let's figure out what this is. He's bicurious right now. He, he's, he's bicurious. Like, we don't know, right? I think it would be kind of interesting if it was just this one person or if they made it more nuanced than, than an I am statement. I'm so fucking sick of I am statements with superheroes. Like, you know, Cassandra Peterson, uh, it was for her, it was, you know, that one person. Right. And that happens. That happens a lot. And, you know, obviously, if the plumbing doesn't work for you, that's a non-starter. And, and I have, you know, especially, uh, it seems my, my personal lesbian friends are way more opposed to penis than my gay friends are to lady parts or vagina. Sorry, you're not allowed to say lady parts anymore. That's, that's cisnormative. But Lady bits. <laughs> lady bits, yes. I named a series after that. People thought I was crazy. And I'm like, come on. If they can't get, it was, it was the stoic comedy thing. If they can't get past the title, you're not going to yeah. like the show. So exactly. um, the thing about that is you had one side going, hey, this is great. The Tim Drake thing. They're like taking kind of an in-joke and towing like tiptoeing in he's not jumping in it's not a batman catwoman splash panel where he's like going down on her well she's still wearing a cat suit and it's not even possible to stretch clothing that way um <laughs> which was another scandal of the moment but you know he, he's he's not sure he's a teenager it it's it's realistic to the teen experience right now and they're using it's that's there but there are other people going and he's Why? handling it in a very Tim Drake way, which is always the very cautious approach. Yeah. yeah. But there are other people going, Why do you have to change every character? And it seems like all of a sudden we get a Bob Fosse number from Chicago. Instead of going, <laughs> all right, you know what's coming, Mouse. You, you know, instead of it being, all right, I see your point, but, and the other side going, I see your point, but they break into, they had it coming. They had it coming. They only had themselves to blame. To blame. God if you would have it, it if you'd have heard it, I hate singing Fosse. Oh my God. It's, it's all, it's also affected. It's my Anne Reardon voice from Boss Fight. It is so bossy. Um, intended to sound like nails on the blackboard, right? Because it's women's prison. But bless. Um, but that's the thing. Like, instead of that whole Anthony Mackie thing about, I mean, we were on different sides of that one. Ironically, I was arguing for platonic male companionship says so much about me uh but you know <laughs> anthony mackie got in trouble on the internet by saying hey like let's not go too far on gaying up falcon and winter soldier and you were like yes but it's breadcrumbs they are throwing yeah. alms to the representative poor just let us have it and i'm like you know what i still don't think anthony mackie should have taken all that shit because what he said was not wrong no but i did see your perspective he didn't. Well, I was never pissed off at him because no, he didn't say it the way he approached it was very much. Ah, blah, blah, and I went, yeah, blah, blah, blah. it wasn't like ah, yeah. he was like, um, hey, let's just pump the brakes. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I've always talked about is, well, if you look at the canon of comic characters, like 90 percent of them 
95% of them are straight. A okay. ginormous chunk of them are white. Um, <laughs> well, that was partially comics code, right? There was yeah. like this huge, big, big alarm that went off if you put a black character in a comic in 1950s through whenever they dropped it. I mean, people don't realize how gutsy uh, Storm and Black Panther were oh, on gosh. the Marvel side. Black, Black Panther was a huge, huge gambit. Uh, well, Jack Kirby didn't Kirby know and, the meaning of the name. <laughs> no, of course not. But, you know, Kirby and Lee, that was gold yeah. <laughs> for Bl Black Panther. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's true. But also, it is also true that Bucky in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that guy, <laughs> bless Sebastian Stan, just watch him in every yes. fucking scene. He is not playing that character straight. He is, he's, he is pulling a Spartacus. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it is so a serial thing now that you get the sense that part of his guilt is not... Um, <laughs> it is not the the killing people under mind control. It's the why do I keep crushing on my bro friends? Oh, my bro friends. He's the Larry Trainer of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And for people who don't watch Doom Patrol, that reference is lost. But you know, uh, he's he's up all night to get Bucky. Um. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I much prefer that and putting in that depiction. And and that's the thing, like. We can joke about this and we can have different perspectives on this and it's fun because we don't lapse into that song from Chicago with every disagreement. They had a comment. Like, yeah. for example, yeah, I've always thought that Beast Boy was a perfect character to be bisexual because he repeats a lot of the issues with Bobby Drake, always going for the emotionally unavailable woman. Right. You know, uh, Tara, Jillian Anderson, freaking Raven. <laughs> Yeah, and it's the kind Raven of like thing always kind of hit me off. That was that ahead. was a Jeff Johns kind of thing, and of course I will. That be, that means that ninety percent of the stuff that that guy wrote is like, why did you do this? Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, sorry, go ahead. But it's the thing that I dislike about the the Beast Boy Robin the uh, Beast Boy Robin. There I go again. Beast Boy Raven thing is that it kind of romanticizes the opposites attract. Yes. Um, kind of thing and the whole bit of you know if he or she is emotionally distant um you know you need to have that that like dislike yeah um mechanic and no that's not healthy relationship well uh, it's it's pulling from what is it the tsundere the tsundere yeah yeah japanese thing which okay teen titans is is that is Very... jumping in the deep end with stealing from stealing from uh anime and manga yeah but that 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 trope indicates an inner warmth, not an emotional detachment. It's not quite mm -hmm. the same thing. Right. But I mean, it, here here's my other thing. And this is where when you when you pile a whole bunch of stuff into the indifferent panel instead of being right or wrong, knee jerking. Here's my thing about comics. People have more issue with Tim Drake being bisexual than mm -hmm. getting Superman and Wonder Woman together, which to me was more gross than Jamie and Cersei Lannister. Yeah. Like, no joke, that just struck me as not only incestuous, but a complete violation of Diana's character, where she'd go for a Kansas farm boy? Well, huh? it's not, 
it's not just that. I mean, because here's the thing. I can see, you could see someone like Diana loving someone like Clark because he is, he's, you know, a cinnamon bun. Dude's as pure as, you know, water. But he'd be like but, a puppy. But he's, but in all of the previous interactions, they've always been like brothers. She's right. always, she's always told, you know, spoke, spoken to him, you know, I see you more, I see you as my brother. Uh, in, in fact, it was one of my favorite, one of my, one actually, uh, not a, it was a mushy moment yeah. where he asked her, you know, so what's the Amazonian, uh, you know, what's the Themyscira word for brother, you know, jokingly. And she yeah. said, Kalel, and she says, Kalel, yeah. uh, which was, you know, it was kind of, oh, but, you know, the, 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 the personalities don't work in a romantic setting. And, and also, the whole, no love for Lois Lane is Steve Trevor. Like, yeah. man, that whole thing. And I just think it's funny that that uh, that and, and this is what happens when people get into a right wrong binary on everything instead of putting something in a morally indifferent category. And then we start going, does this work creatively? Right. Mm -hmm. If we pull our moral outrage out of the examination of this thing, does it work? And, and to me, that's the stoic space. Right. Yeah, It's the wisdom of knowing. The, now I know why I was thinking Epictetus is because of the uh, my favorite definition of wisdom comes from him. Um, he said that you know the the main task in life is to identify and separate matters so that you can tell yourself what which which externals are not under your control and which externals are not important and which have to do with the choices that you actually control. Bless and, you got to the one the only thing I wanted to get to on this podcast. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he says, you know, where do, where then do I look for good and evil? Right. Not to uncontrollable externals, but within myself to the choices that are on my own. Right. Yes. Yes. And this is, again, another thing. Can you control what DC Comics does with their editorial? Can you control... Not even DC Comics control what they do with their editorial. Well, yeah, I, I don't think the I don't even think the MCU is in control. Star Wars is certainly lost control. Star Wars isn't Jesus take the wheel, the force is lost. <laughs> Nobody trusts their fucking feelings. Anyway, they're there. So I'm like, can I control what happens in these places? No. Am I gonna make jokes about it? Yes. Am I gonna get passionate about certain things to illustrate a larger point? Yes. But I care about that larger point. I don't give a hairy shit what these companies do to suck dollars out of people who are too attached to the media they consume. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can't control this. I don't friggin' care. What can I choose? Well, I can create my own content, mm -hmm. which is hard enough on its, on its, in its own right to not be like raw on other people's shit. I can vote. You know, I might not be able to directly control the decisions government makes, but I can go and vote every single time. And you know what? A lot of people can't. You couldn't for years because mm -hmm. you, you were now now not can. a citizen. Now you can. The floodgates <laughs> have been unleashed. The right? floodgates are open. Yeah. But, you know, and that's the sort of thing. There's all this lecturing about privilege in postmodern academia, but privilege is connected to agency and agency is about what you as an individual can control. And I actually teach agency and game design at a local college. I finally got under the gender ghetto and get to teach the exact same goddamn thing under a different term. <laughs> 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 it, it is all about what 
different characters can do in different ways. Mm-hmm. And it is amazing to me how many people do not understand the difference between what you can control and what you can't. And you know what's interesting about this mouse is that that was a big part of, I spent a year in PTSD therapy. That was the core of it. It was all about separating what you can control from what you can't and focusing on what you can control. Mm-hmm. It's highly, highly effective. It's not reciting street names like in Jessica Jones. Oh God, did that. I, I had to, I had to peel myself off the ceiling on that one. Um, you know, it's, it's not rapid eye movement. It's not any of these things that can temporarily soothe but it doesn't retrain the brain to respond to situations differently. Right. What actually does retrain the brain is that space between stimulus and action, stimulus and decision. What can I control? What can't I control? How am I going to address the part I can control? Which is, interestingly enough, which is the crux of video games. Well, yes. If you are if you are playing a game, you are in a situation where someone else has created a system, and you right. only have a certain amount of things that you can do within that system, and you have to prioritize. You know, how do I respond to this? How do I react to this? Yeah, I, I, there's also a fusion of it, right? Like I, they, the the students never get it when I say who jumps the jump man. Philistines, you know, who watches the Watchmen? Who jumps the Jumpman? Mario was yes. originally called Jumpman, but is Mario making that choice or is the player? Or is the player. Right, there's a fusion there. But the problem, what, ha- what happens in discussion of video games, right? Instead of analyzing what is there, what is on the screen, what we can infer through controller inputs, what developer intent was, it's what it should have been. This character should have been a woman. This character should have been black, shoulda, woulda, coulda, not what's there. That, that is ego. That is not analysis. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, do I terribly care if one character is male or female? Sometimes I will argue, like if Kratos was a woman, totally different story. It's the Greeks and Norse, for God's sakes. They don't even have a gendered surnames, you know? Yeah. Kratos has to be a man in, in those games. Uh, do I terribly care that Chell in Portal is female? No, it's completely fucking irrelevant. And yet everyone's like, Chell is so great for representation. Why? She doesn't speak and you never see her except on the box art. Well, like, yeah, and, the, and the mirror. And the mirror. Yes, and, and the, mirror. the mirror. Companion, like Companion Cube and GLaDOS are the, the, the real GLaDOS being a female boss. I will argue that that one's important. Right. Shout out to GLaDOS, a fellow opera singer. Yes, it was a triumph. I won't do it. I won't do it. I won't do it because <laughs> uh, we got to wrap soon. Yeah, but... you resisted and that is a huge success. Oh, it's hard to overstate my satisfaction. <laughs> oh, shit, we're doing it. We're very tired. But that's, uh, it, you know, we get into these woulda, coulda, shouldas. And we see this in politics all the time now especially on the progressive side, but also let's face it on the extreme right. Oh God, yes. Everybody is so 100% Plato. It's all in ideals. And we don't even know what Plato really thought. Everything's inferred by Plato said this through Socrates, right? Um, 
or was it the other way around? That's right. The other Socrates. way around. Okay, so Socrates said this with Plato. So it's it's Socrates, right? It's well Plato Platonic ideals, but never mind that. I got mixed up. But you know, it's morning. <laughs> it's morning. It's morning in America. Uh, but. Huh? You know, it's, it's this is the ideal, and this is a perfect ideal, and we're going to hold on tight until we get this ideal. But what does Plato teach us about ideals? The minute they come real, they step down from the ideal. Once we start adding details, well, it's not ideal anymore because it has to become concrete. But the right holds on to this fake view of a past America that never actually existed. The right, the, the, the left holds on to this fake view of a utopian America that's never going to exist. And so what do they do? They end up wrecking shit. I mean, the alt-right speaks for itself, right? Mm -hmm. But you get over to the left and they're the ones that push this Mouse, I apologize for speaking for you on this one, but this fucking Latinx thing. Yeah. No, you're not, you're, you're not speaking for me. I mean, I, I, as, as, a, as a person of, uh, of, from Latin America, I, I feel I dislike that term. And you're not alone. 3% of Lat Latin American people use that term. Latin American and Chicano, because it's not the same thing, but... Right. Oh, they oh they don't Latin American people that the mouse just said it don't like this word. And yet white America essentially is forcing this term on a people going, uh, no, thanks. It's not the correct construction of our well, language. We don't put X's on the end of words. Here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with just say if you want a gender neutral, just say Latin. And of course, the objections are, well, people, people are going to confuse you for the Roman. Who the fuck is going to confuse me for a Roman when I right. talk about Latin? Right. The Romans have been dead for 2000 years. I mean, the, the, old, the ancient Romans. There's a lot right. of people in Rome right now who would object to me saying that. But or, uh, it's <laughs> or how about we just recognize that a language is not a race and exactly use Hispanic as the linguistic designation and actually recognize that people from, you know, South Central, uh, South Central, South and Central America and Mexico, there's Lebanese descent, there's black mm -hmm. Hispanic, there, there's, there's other things going on. And you've got, you know, you've got, you have, you have the mix, mixture of the, you know, in Ecuador, you've got the Shuar uh, and a whole bunch of other indigenous tribes. So, you know, you could just go and say Spanish speaking people. And if you need to talk about specific ethnicities, you know, natives of Ecuador, natives right. of Bolivia, people who live in, you know, Central Americans, that's, South Americans. That's what we yeah. tend to do up here in Canada, at least in the Toronto area. We, sent, we tend to d differentiate between different uh, countries, especially in the Caribbean. Right. I mean, even, even if you try to lump all of South America in one as one group, it doesn't work no, uh, because it, people from Ecuador are vastly different in just about everything from, say, uh, people in Argentina, outside of the fact that, you know, a good chunk of them descend from Nazis. But <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Brazil <laughs> is very different. Yes, El Salvador Brazil, is very different. And we're, you know, we're, Brazil is very, very different from Ecuador. <sighs> and we're right, ne we're right next to each other. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if you if you insist on idealizing everything, if you do this collectivist, this is perfect. We're going to force you because this is perfect. That the Stoics would be, this is 
this is not wisdom. And that's what we're caught up in right now. And you mm-hmm. get, you know, I, I admit with all the screaming and yelling that's going on with a bunch of stuff, I kind of admire Biden's calm. I don't necessarily agree with the decisions he's making, but the fact that he's like, this is government. This is what happens. You know, <laughs> it, it's nice to have a return to that. Um, you know, we're, we're, I think we're getting, I hope, we're getting out of some of the craziness because <sighs> our leaders need to start leading by example. I think part of the reason that it's Marcus Aurelius, especially that has been having a comeback lately is not just because meditations is very digestible in bite sizes, but also because he actually was a leader. Mm-hmm. He was a scholarly politician who wrote well in leadership. And I think people are very much wanting they, they want a, a, a Superman type figure. People may not know that Superman came out of the depression. And so Superman was this embodiment. Some people say of the new deal that something could, that could lift up the little guy because the idea that you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps had been shattered. So we kind of need a, a stoic philosophy, a, a, a leader that doesn't necessarily punch stuff, but you know, Wonder Woman was supposed to be that before Pedro Pascal just creates his own gravity and sucks everything into everything he does. Not his fault. He's a great actor, but that's an actual (laughs) award movie with Wonder Woman as a sidekick. Uh, Yes. Pedro Pascal has the Meryl Streep effect, uh, which is no matter what actor you put up next to them, you know, they will eat them up for breakfast. And that shouldn't have happened. The problem is the script enabled that in Wonder Woman 1984. But yeah, we we need some depictions of leaders that actually stop and think before doing shit. And, you know, Disney is trying with that, but they're not doing it great. But we need some real life examples as well, right? Mm -hmm. We need some examples of people who do not do everything they do to appeal to Twitter. Their people are going, hey, wait a minute. Let's just take a breath and think about this instead of just doing the catharsis thing. Because the Greeks knew there was a time and place for catharsis. You couldn't catharsis all the time. Nope. And hopefully... Hopefully, if people understand these concepts, they will understand that ah, taking a pause isn't weakness. Taking a pause doesn't necessarily mean you'll change your mind. Taking a pause and thinking things through, taking that space to take five seconds to think will result in better decision-making and quite frankly, less guilt in the long run. You'll mm-hmm. be the, the thing about taking pauses like that is when everybody gets mad at you. I don't know about you, Mouse, but I just find if I know I stopped and thought about it and did something consciously, the mob screaming, it's tiring, but it doesn't hurt me the same no. way. It doesn't cause me to second guess myself. I think they're crazy and kind of terrifying, but. It, it doesn't shake me from knowing I did the right thing. Yeah. The, uh, um, 
as that very, very stoic musical goes Sunday in the Park with George. Yes. Um, you know, I chose and my world was shaken. So what? The choice may have been mistaken. The choosing was not. Right. You have to move on. That's a good place to stop. I'm, I'm happy with that landing. This has been the Broken Clock Podcast on the FU Network, funetwork.tv, PayPal, Patreon, all that good stuff. Mouse, as usual, you have the final word. I think I said it. <laughs> <laughs>